Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for home theater geeks is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded July 11th, 2011, episode 72, History Heil Style. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here with UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. This week's guest geek is Bob Heil of Heil Sound, maker of microphones that Leo uses, host of the Twit podcast Ham Nation, and a pioneer in the field of live concert sound and home theater. So I know he's got a lot of great stories to tell us today. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Scott, it's nice to uh, to be with you, and I I appreciate you asking me on. And greetings to uh, all of your audience here and in the in the chat room. This is really great. It's kind of strange to be on the air and there's light outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you normally do a ham nation at night. Yes, ah, okay. uh, it's at eight o'clock Central Time. Of course, it's not light. It's still light out there, but where we do it in this same little station lab where I'm doing this from, it's uh, it's usually dark. But that's okay. We can that's make okay. it work. I think we can. It must be a little strange for you also to be at the receiving end of the uh, podcast rather than the hosting end, huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna have a great time today. I know because you and I have chatted several times in the past. We met uh, first at uh, the NAB show. And uh, where I uh, did some hosting at your party, I, I did some uh, broadcasting from there, and that was a lot of fun. And since then, you and I have been in chatting and emailing and so on, and uh, so uh, there's a lot of great stories to tell. I just want to let everybody know in the chat room that uh, you can post questions for Bob, and uh, I will be uh, passing them along as best I can. Um, okay, so I wanted to start basically... You have a long history in music. You started as an organist in St. Louis in the 1950s. Yes, I actually started, uh, and didn't everybody, when I was 10, I started playing the accordion. Oh, cool. Yeah, and uh, I did that for a couple of years, and then uh, it was kind of interesting. Um, The grade school music teacher was the organist here at the Baptist Church, and I would go down to his house because he had a brand new C2 Hammond organ. Ooh, nice. I was 12 years old, and I started playing, and finally brought my mother and father down to let them hear me goof around on that organ that I'd been done so much. And they they went and and bought me a a C2. We didn't have a 3 then. It uh, didn't have percussion on it, but looked Mm -hmm. just like a B3 with a case on it. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't believe it. When I look back, I was 12 years old, and my parents spending $3,000 on an organ in 1952, that was pretty amazing. amazing. Yeah, that's some serious money in 1952. It was, and they were not wealthy people. They had a little shoe store in the town of 2000. At the same time, though, Interesting about it, Scott, the the music teacher's son was in the back room learning Morse code to be a ham. Mm. And so as we progressed a little further a couple of years later, I went back with his son, George, who I was in high school with, and 
got my ham radio ticket. So it all kind of went uh, at the same time and, and so on. But it, it was very interesting because the, the organ is really where I learned to listen and listening is an art. You, you, I teach a, a lot in colleges over my lifetime, and I've written several books about it. And one of the chapters that I, that I talk about is hearing. Hearing is a physical process. Oh, yeah, we hear da-di-da. <laughs> listening is a mental process. Mm. You're listening to this violin. Are you hearing the harmonics of the strings in the body? You just have so much more when you listen. And how I learned to listen was shortly after I started playing at the age of 12, I was playing like four and five hours a day. I can't believe my parents lived with all this. I'd come home from school and I'm still <laughs> But that's how I learned. And then I... I became the protege of Stan Can. He was one of the the most prolific theater organists in the country and was the organist here at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. I think we have a picture of you at the Fox (laughs) Theater organ. There it is. Oh, gosh. I was (laughs) 15. That thing thing looks like a spaceship console. Yeah, it's, I was 15 years old. I couldn't even hit all of the keyboards and the and the uh, the tablets. But uh, we 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 learned to to play that thing and become his substitute. And then we had to get inside the pipes. That that was the art. He taught me how to listen and how to voice theater organs. And uh, I got next to Martin Wick, who was the president and owner of Wick Pipe Organ, and I would go there and spend a day. It was, uh, it was just in heaven for this little kid to go to uh, these places and learn all these fabulous things, and especially standing in a whole room full of pipes, everything from one inch to 32 foot long. Yeah. And of course, at the Fox, we had five rooms. Uh, full of stuff, but uh, that's how I learned to listen, and little did I know later on in my life, in my career, how important listening would be, and uh, I I carried on and got very involved in ham radio, oh my gracious, (laughs) I got really carried away, and I still am. Of course. I uh, I played six nights a week, I had a pipe organ here in the the, uh, Holiday Inn, and we have a picture of you in the Holiday Inn, I think, too, um, uh, coming up here. If the, there it is, yep. yep. I <laughs> uh, built that so- organ. That was a three manual, three keyboard Hammond organ with uh, uh, all kinds of electric uh, uh, solenoids hooked to marimbas and the piano. And oh, when so I so it was like an early synthesizer in a way. It was. I had drums and cymbals and uh, wood blocks and all that, but they were mechanically. Uh, operated from the Hammond organ keyboard, which is what the theater organ does. The theater organ has all of this stuff on it, and it's all mechanically done. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed building all these things. And then from there in 1962, I put five ranks of pipes on it. So you could come to the Holiday Inn in North St. Louis and actually hear a pipe organ in a, in a restaurant. Mm, that's amazing. And, it was. It was. It, when I think back on it, how how great it was for the uh, all of the the things that happened because it was building all of the building blocks for my career that was yet to happen, mm-hmm. and that career happened when I quit playing uh, six nights a week. 
I opened a Hammond organ store in this little town of Marissa. I don't know still how I got that franchise, but I did. And um, I started selling Hammond organs. What else was I going to do? Because I knew them well. I could take them mm-hmm. apart. I could fix them and all that. But these kids started coming in the store. And, and the, one of them never will forget the day they had a, a, a little box. And I said, what, what is this? And he said, this is my Fender. And I go, no, that's what's on the front of my car. What is this thing? <laughs> car ramp, you freak. I said, well, what, what are you doing? Well, it's broke. I wonder if you can fix it. Well, I've, Scott, I figured I knew that he probably wanted it to go to 12, and it only went to 10, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Well, yeah. Anybody up. who's seen Spinal Tap knows what you mean. <laughs> so I relied on my old ham radio. I looked upside and inside it, and, hey, there's a pair of 6L6s and a 5U4. There's a transmitter up behind me here. You can see that black box up there. 1956, yep. that was my first transmitter. It's still on the air. And old Harvey Wells got a pair of 6L6s and a 5U4. Guess what? I knew what was going on about that, <laughs> that amplifier, so I fixed it in about, oh, 15 minutes. And the word got out that there was this little freak down in Illinois that could fix things. So the first thing you know, I was having all kinds of musicians now. This is 1967, 68, right when it was all starting. Mm-hmm. And there were very few people that in the music business that understood what they wanted because, first of all, if some guy came into the store with his hair down to, to wherever, you weren't even going to let him in the store. You didn't know what. No, these are these are artists. So... I became really involved in that scene. I started renting Hammond organs to the groups that would come in the Keel Auditorium and the Fox Theater and so on in St. Louis. And uh, the PA was terrible. The PAs were awful, little bitty columns, but that's all we had. That's what the technology was. And I built this massive PA using a bunch of Macintosh amplifiers. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, and a bunch of A4 Altex and JBL mid-range uh, front-loaded horns and JBL compression drivers. I didn't know that the rest of the world wasn't doing this. I figured that's what they were doing. No, they weren't. Not at that time. Not yet. And one day I got this call from this stagehand at the Fox that used to push the button to bring that console up and down we just saw. And he said, hey, you still got those big speakers? And I said, I do. He said, well, talk to this guy. They came in here tonight, and their PA didn't make it. Oh, okay. Handed the phone to Jerry Garcia. (laughs) The Grateful Dead, and if you know anything about the history, if you follow the history of the Grateful Dead, Owsley, their sound man at the time, and uh, whatever, he had a lot of titles. (laughs) (laughs) He was he, he was famous for creating what was later called the Wall of Sound, I believe, right? Yep. Yep, after he got with some of the stuff we did there and all of the other things he was making in his lab and it had nothing to do with resistors and capacitors, but anyway, uh, <laughs> they they were doing this little short tour and uh out in the Midwest and over to the East Coast and uh Owsley was on probation. He shouldn't have been out of the state of california mm. so the feds followed him into new orleans the night before their first night on this little gig and uh hello the pa the truck and the gear and owsley ended up back in california we didn't have cell phones they didn't have very good communications in 1970 so 
they came onto the Fox Theater in about four o'clock when sound check should have been already and set up. No Owsley. That's when they called me, or then stagehand called me. And so we hurried up and took all that stuff up at the Fox, and it really was a piece of rock and roll history. It changed mm. the way that things happened because we brought this big PA out on the road, hit the front page of Billboard magazine that Ye Old Music Shop was the name of my little store, and <laughs> we were <laughs> with the Grateful Dead. And I never will forget this. I got a phone call a couple of days. I didn't go. I had roadies. I was really lucky about that, too, Scott. Two of my roadies were from Carbondale, where Southern Illinois University was. Mm-hmm. And Peter Kimball, we'll come back and talk about Peter in a minute. You're going to be very interested to hear Peter's story. But Peter, um, he knew every lick of the, uh, of the Grateful Dead's music. They were Grateful Dead heads, and they loved the band. And that was part of it, is that they could mix them really well because they knew what was happening. As you well know, that's half of it, is to be able to mix. Sure. And so out they went to uh, the other uh, shows, and I get this call from Garcia, and he says, Hey, Heil, what's this uh, ye old music stuff? I said, Well, that's the name of my store. And he said, "Um, We can't pronounce all that. We're just going to call you Heil Sound. Is that okay? So (laughs) it was Jerry Garcia that named my company. (laughs) Wow. Wow. We had a great relationship with with Jerry and, and, and all the other bands because here you're looking at a character that's never tasted beer, never smoked a cigarette, but yet I was running around with all these guys. Pete Townsend put it best. He said, uh, that's okay. He said, leave him alone. He has a soldering iron. I always carry a soldering iron. You always carry a soldering you iron. You always have a soldering iron because you never know when you're going to have to solder something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's got a soldering iron. He makes it sound good, and he can drive the truck. <laughs> the designated and, driver. Yeah, and that's how it happened. Well, we hit the front page of Billboard, and by then, oh, my gracious, everybody was calling us and all the larger groups because we had the big sound. And the big call came from the Who, and oh, what an incredible time that was. It was so good. We did about, I don't know, six, seven years with the Who, all of Who's Next, Quadrophenia. Um, that was a neat deal where after we had finished a couple of years with, with Who's Next, which really was different music for them. They came over here after doing Tommy, mm-hmm. and they had all this new stuff which was groundbreaking, but uh, a lot of Who fans didn't know what was going to happen. So they had to really put it on. They came over here and didn't have a PA worth of darn, and they heard about ours and the way we went. I got the call, and off to Buffalo we went. Hmm. Well, it wasn't off to Buffalo. It was off to Boston. Hmm. And uh, it was kind of interesting. They called me, and they said, um, where are you now? And I said, well, um, the, the uh, sound system's in Chicago uh, doing a Chaka Khan tour. Well, we need that sound system here in Boston tomorrow. Uh, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> no, we, this is the management of the Who, and we hear you have this large PA, and you just did the dead and all that. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, get it into Boston tomorrow. I said, we can't even drive there. Well, I, I don't care about all that. Find somebody to cover the chocolate dates. Fly it here. I said, it's going to take a 747. Rent one. Oh, so it's the first time and probably the only time in my lifetime, Scott Wilkinson, that I ever rented a 707. Oh, my God. What, what year we, was this? 
71. Wow. And you rented a, a, a jetliner. Yeah, t- Tiger Airlines. They were a, f- a freighter. You can still do that today, you know, if you want to spend the money and all that. But sure. they uh, they wanted to do it, and they did it, and we did it, and it was history. We came out of there with this incredible, massive sound system for the Who, and it changed their career. It really did because they had uh, – uh, just to really put it into context – Pete said, hey, finally a PA that I can't outplay because <laughs> they play real loud. Now, 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 you made a point. I wanted to make sure I get this point in here. Uh, when we were talking before uh, offline, uh, you said that the, the, one of the problems, you had these big speakers, and that was fine. But one of the problems was that mixers weren't up to the task. Exactly. And so you have a great story about how you uh, came to... Uh, develop uh, a mixer that was up to the task of these giant rock and roll shows. Well, that's where Peter comes into it, and I'm about ready to launch it. We have a picture of backside of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame display. I believe it's uh, called uh, Rock Hall 3 uh, for John, who's calling up these photos. It doesn't have the white speaker in it. It's the other side, and that's the exact mixer. What happened was I, I put this system together. And we were doing these dates, and we had little Alltech mixers in those days. Uh, that's the front side of it. That's there's the front one. side of it. There's an, yep. Yeah, there's another one. That's, while we're, that's while we're you. there. That, oh, yeah, that's, there we can say that's you and your lovely wife, Sarah. It is. And that is the Rock is and Roll Hall of Fame. The console, the Mavis, the red and blue one, mm-hmm. that is the very console that we did Quadrophenia with. Mm, and the, the live the tour, you mean? Mm-hmm. And over on the right side were the amplifiers that we built, and uh, the uh, the first parametric equalizer that was modular that George Massenberg really invented the parametric back in the 60s. But I, I took it into a form that it could be plugged in different places, mm-hmm. and then we had the first electronic crossover. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then on top of that, it's kind of neat. That is the Echoplex uh, tape machine from Germany that we did the delay for the guitars. And all of that stuff is in the side. But on the back side of it is this very special mixer. I I needed a mixer, not not just a little six-channel thing with knobs. We needed equalization, so I figured, wow, we'll buy us a recording console. So went to Langevin, and we bought this really cool Langevin mixer over on the right side. Yep, but there it is. There, there we see it now. It was very sensitive, and it wouldn't work well in live because you were just overloading it like who wouldn't have it. Peter said, hey, I got this guy that I went to high school with, and he's just coming out of the University of Illinois end of the year here, and he's not going to be able to get a job very well because he's coming out half year. So we'll, we could call him and, and have him help us. And I said, oh, okay. So he called his friend, and his friend started writing me letters, and I still have some of them. Mm. I, I'm a ham. We don't throw anything away. So. <laughs> I don't know why I kept these, but I did. They're, they're absolute audio history. They were they were written on Holiday Inn, of all things, stationary in Springfield, Missouri. I need to ask him someday what in the world was he doing there. But the first, and he had a diagram of what he was going to do, what we needed to do. He also had several other letters that he, and he hand wrote all these and drew all the little schematics and stuff. And I followed along. I mean, I wasn't an engineer. I'm a ham. And I wasn't going to rip into that $10,000 mixer without a little help. 
Mm-hmm. I, I was a little scared at that point. So, who was this guy? Who was this guy? This guy was Tomlinson Holman. Oh, my goodness. And the, we all know that name, of course. He is the TH of THX. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so to speak, I guess uh, we were one of his first jobs when he came out of college and he helped rebuild their brief, just reconfigure that great mixer that was used for so many concerts. And uh, it ended up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So Sitting right there in that, in that case on yep. the other side from, from where we saw before. Yep, it's a it's got all sides and that back side's got that in it, and uh, so Tommy and I had a we had a great time together because he helped us with that so much. That other mixer is a Sun mixer that I helped design for the Sun people. Mm-hmm. We took that out with the Who for a number of years, and uh, those are monitors. We were known for our monitors. Monitors weren't really happening then, but I had figured out how to tame them with the dead. We had. A you're talking about you're talking about onstage monitor speakers now. Yep, that little white thing you see there—that's a little slanted monitor. Mm. And people that tried it, they couldn't make it work well because it fed back like crazy. Yeah, so I just solved that problem. Well, that was easy. That goes to our 128 element antenna <laughs> that I had up in 1962 which played so many parts in my career and in, in, in this whole crazy world we live in. I there put up there it is. There's a 128-element antenna with, I think, you hanging off of that the is central true. pole. That is me. I'm sorry to interrupt. What does a, an antenna like that have to do with onstage monitors? Everything. All those little antennas, there's... there's little uh, 19 inch on each side of the boom there's 128 of these that have to be all wired and phased mm. we had harnesses up on the boom and we had the, the the right length of coax and everything to make every one of those in phase because if you don't get it in phase it doesn't happen mm. nothing happens have you ever heard that or ever seen that demonstration uh, certainly of, of phase I have, but if you have something you can demonstrate for oh, us. Oh, I have do. something really cool. I, I didn't think about this till just now. I had a, um, gosh, I don't know if I can do this or not. Uh, let, me, let me work on this in my head a little bit, see if I could do it. Anyway, okay. you take two microphones out of phase and you talk into them, you know what you get? Nothing. Zipperoonie. Nothing. But okay. if they're out of phase, I mean out of phase, if they're in phase... Hey, they add 3DB together. Right. It's a great demo that I do. But the, the situation is I learned that phasing back in 1962. I'd, heard, I'd learned a lot about it with voicing the pipe organ, and it just kind of laid around and festered in my little brain all these years. Well, I'm going, wait a minute. We could do that monitor, have a little microphone up here out of phase from the regular PA, and it wouldn't feed back. Guess what? It doesn't. Hey, what a great idea. That's what we did. And we brought monitors to big-time, big-time deals in in rock and roll sound. And and it was just so much fun to be able to bring simple science. See, what we're talking about is not some wild thing. It's just simple stuff. 
and that's that. I mean, I'm not an engineer, Scott. I was just a ham, mm-hmm. learning all this stuff. And then Tommy would come in, and when I needed some real stuff done, <laughs> he if I got in any trouble, I had Tom around, man, and he uh, he took care of it. Mm. But then I. Um, I went on through my, my audio career. We did all kinds of people. I have a picture of ZZ Top that I did in 1970. I was, it was one of the first uh, concerts that we did with them, and one of their first concerts that we did with that big PA because everybody wanted it. Actually, that, I have a picture of you with ZZ Top, I think a little past that. You sent that, me one from 1970, but it was very small. Yeah. So I'm just showing here a picture of you with the entire mm-hmm. band. Yeah, uh, well, they, a little later. Yeah, that was a few years ago because they're using my microphones now. But I did them in 1970, and they didn't have any beards yet. <laughs> I love showing that picture to so many people, and especially trivia. I win trivia contests all over the world because I'll show them this picture and say, "Who are these guys?" Nobody has Nobody ever guessed. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody ever guessed that it's ZZ Top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, it. Um, it was a great time, and uh, didn't you also to, develop the uh, talk box for Peter Frampton? Yeah, up 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 came uh, my friend Joe Walsh. Joe was a ham. He was a, and I'm talking about amateur radio operator. He's also a ham. Well, yes, <laughs> but He's Joe and I got on stage. very yeah, well. We we started with the James Gang. Uh, right, Irving. we have a picture of you and Joe. I think. Hmm. Uh. He he was just such a great friend because we'd go out in the back of the bus, man, and uh, fire up the ham radio stuff. That picture that you're looking at was the first time that the PR20 microphone was used. That was the first pro microphone that I built for Joe. He wanted me to build him a better microphone because the stuff they had been using, all these silly little ball microphones, weren't making it. And he knew that. So did everybody else. But it's habit and ego. I got to use his ball mic. Okay. Joe wasn't happy. He was a ham. He was an experimenter. He's very technical. And he knew the microphone could be better because my ham radio microphone was better. Uh, I have a, a thing we call the gold line. Just, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands in the past 10 years. And this is it. This outperforms an SM28, or an SM58. And he's going, hey, Build this for me without the push to talk and all that. I'm going to use it. Well, you just saw it. That was the first one. Who in his right mind would ever figure that I would go further than that and would have the master Leo Laporte using my microphones? <laughs> That's how far it has come. Indeed. But anyway, Joe, um, he, he, he wanted to leave the James gang, and he said – um. Man, I got this song I want to do with, with Barnstorm. We're going to put this new band together. I want you to, to rig up the sound system for me, and we're going to do a big deal. And, but I got this song, and I did it with a speaker and a funnel. And he said, I want to do this. Well, these two hams in 19, about 71, we figured out how to make what we call the Heil talk box. And that talk box was what he used on Rocky Mountain Way. Mm. And there's that, a picture of it. That one you're looking at was serial number one. It scratched in the side of that fiberglass case because I didn't know what was going to happen. I built a few of them out of fiberglass. I had, had our own fiberglass shop because we built our speakers and our horns out of fiberglass. Mm-hmm. So I built that thing for Joe. And uh, then I got a call from Penny. 
Penny was married in my home. And uh, in 74, she called me and said, I need a Christmas present for Peter. I said, okay. And so I sent her a talk box, and she gave it to Peter Frampton, and you can write the rest of that story. (laughs) (laughs) He he went on to make it very famous, obviously. Yeah. If you go to my website, HeilSound.com, you'll see some very cool videos. And one of them we did just last fall, sit down with Peter in Nashville and talked about those days and how important the talk box is to his career. And as we speak, he's on tour right now playing that album in its entirety. It is a fabulous show. Don't miss Peter Frampton. Uh, He's turning on all kinds of new... uh, New listeners, people that really didn't know who he was back in the days, but then he's taking guys like you and I, and boy, we're just uh, going crazy. So, yeah, but anyway, that's how that all happened, and the talk box is still out there, still being built, and still uh, being used by many. Tool, uh, Slash, Alice in Chains, all kinds of new bands are using them as well as the old rockers. So, mm-hmm. uh, And that is, that picture you saw of the purple... Uh, number one is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I had Peter and Joe both sign it. And mm-hmm. it I, I'm, Scott, it, 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 it's very honorable, and I'm quite blessed to be able to bring all this stuff because, you know, you don't do this stuff and, and wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to do something today, and I'm going to be really cool and very special. No, you're not. You, you No, you, you put your pants on like everybody else, and you just <laughs> do what you have to do and do your job. Yeah, once in a while it's kind of fun and you do something a little different, but you never expect that 30, 40, 50 years later it ends up like that in a room next to Les Paul's room in the Rock and Roll, in the rock and roll Hall of Fame. Whoa. Well, but, wow, what, a, what an incredible life you've had, and that's only half the story. Oh, that's that. Now we Even, get up to your part, man. We the get fun. up to my part, and uh, which is home theater. And I know you've got some amazing stories to tell there. But before we get to them, I just have to take a moment to yes. thank our sponsor for this episode of Home Theater Geeks, which is Netflix. Netflix yes. delivers movies directly to your home and saves you time, money, and hassle. In fact, I would be surprised if any of our listeners don't already have Netflix. You can instantly watch thousands of movie ep- uh, TV episodes and movies stream directly to your PC or Mac, or these days directly to your TV. Uh, most TVs are Netflix-enabled or game consoles, Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii, Blu-ray players. I mean, it's available just about anywhere and everywhere. You can watch as many movies as you want anytime you want. There are never any late fees and certainly no due dates. Be sure to sign up for your free trial at netflix.com slash twit. And we thank Netflix for their support of the Twit Network. So, uh, Bob Heil, we've been talking about your amazing career in the rock and roll live sound arena, uh, which, of course, is really less than half of your amazing life. Uh, the ham radio stuff, of course, is, is huge, and you cover that on your own podcast, Ham Nation. So I wanted to focus on this show, Home Theater Geeks, about your early days in home theater, uh, which also has some uh, quite amazing uh, aspects to it. And you have some really cool stories to tell. And I believe it started, correct me if I'm wrong, with you and Bob uh, Bob Cooper communicating with each other by bouncing signals off the moon. 
with that big antenna that you saw. Exactly. You saw that 128-element antenna. Yes. And that's and, what you needed, and you and Bob Cooper were shooting signals back at each other, back and forth, by bouncing them off the moon. 1962. That's quite astonishing. And I just, I, I love to experiment. I, I did all of the ham radio stuff, and I played all the organ stuff, and then did about 15 years on the road, but I got tired of that. Um, the music scene changed. I did almost every concert. I didn't. My crew did. But uh, Heil Sound did almost every show that Humble Pie played. We did so many. We named a few of them. We're talking about literally hundreds of groups during the 70s used Heil Sound. But I got tired of it. The music scene was changing. Keith Moon killed himself. Humble Pie was off the road. Frampton was off the road. All my buddies, I'm going, and then all of a sudden punk rock came in. Nothing against punk rock, but I wasn't doing those. And, and it was going to cost me several million dollars in 1980 to redo my sound system to take care of what they wanted. So I said, you know what? I'm done. And I sold my system. And I got out of it. Well, what am I going to do? I got back to my ham radio days, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what happened here? The audio was awful in the years that I had been gone from ham radio. Well, what had happened was the imports came in. There were, there were no more uh, American-built things, Art Collins and Bob Drake and all that, and the audio was awful. And they had these foreign microphones that just sounded putrid. So I started building microphones to fit the transmitters. And uh, we have really amassed a very nice career again in ham radio because we're doing it. And I'm, you're, sit, you're with me sitting here in my station lab. If I turn the camera around, there's all kinds of other radios here. What's behind me is the stuff I've had since 1956. Hmm. A big old Collins receiver you see back there, 75A4, uh, Halicrafters. All of these great old names, I still keep them on the air. I was on the air yesterday with them, and, and, and I love all that stuff. But I thought, hmm, what are we going to do here? Well, I turn on the Tom Schneider show one day, one night, of course. One night, late at night. I remember watching that show. I love Tom Schneider. And there's Bob Cooper. And I'm going, what is this? And he had a dish. He'd gotten this dish from some kind of surplus, uh, government surplus, and had made a dish that he was receiving HBO that was coming out of New York on the, the little, uh, they had a little leg from New York to Philadelphia to start with. And he's in Oklahoma picking this up. He had, a, had taken a, a coffee can and made an LNA out of it and all homebrew stuff. And, and L so, LNA, LNA, tell us what that means. Yeah, and, and, and there's, there's all kinds of electronics that go with a dish system, but the first thing is the LNA, which is the thing you see out in the front on the tripods. That is a low-noise amplifier, mm. and it picks up that very weak signal from 22,000 miles away, and it comes back down, hits the dish, and you know how you used to take a magnifying glass and start a fire with a piece of paper, that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Same deal. The dish magnifies that very small signal and points it right into the back of the LNA. And that low-noise amplifier builds that small signal up, sends it down the, the piece of coax into your receiver inside the house. La-la, you have satellite television. Hmm. And he used to hold 
court, as I always called it, in his backyard in Oklahoma, and a bunch of us hams would go down there and learn how to build this stuff. He was a single-handed person. Bob Cooper started Home Satellite in his backyard in Oklahoma. And a lot of TV dealers, most of the TV dealers in the 50s and 60s were hams. They put up towers and antennas. Well, you needed lots of antennas to pick up analog television in those days. And uh, most of us could do that. Well, I just, I became, like everything else, I went crazy. And I started building and uh, dish antennas. And we were at Marissa's 50 miles from St. Louis. It's, it's out in the middle of nowhere in the coal fields of southern Illinois. And there were some people then, we're talking 1980 now, Scott, that didn't receive television at all. Mm. They were like 70, 80 miles or behind bluffs and so on, and there were no large cities. Well, I was like the music man. Boy, I, uh, I had a, a trailer with a dish on it, and I'd take that thing into town and set it up, and we'd just sell the heck out of satellite television to some of these people that had never seen television. And uh, then we would... We hired by the SBCA, Satellite Broadcasting Communications Association. They'd have uh, four, at that time, conventions a year around the country. And we'd set these things up, and I would teach out in the parking lot. We'd have all these different dishes, and I would teach wannabe dealers how to become satellite dealers. Mm. And it just grew and grew and grew. And in 1989, I became the Satellite Dealer of the Year for the country thousands of dishes we had put in but back in 85 what really did that scene for us to make us very visible at one of the conventions in nashville i'll never forget this i had built a pair of jbl speakers and i had a speaker in the rear and pioneer loaned me a prototype receiver that had rear channels. How did they do that, Scott? <laughs> we only have two signals, left and right, correct? Yep. How did we get the rears? Aha, remember that thing we were talking about phasing? Yes. When they record the movie, they record it left to right, dot de da mm. But they also take the rear information and record it out of phase and mm -hmm. embed it in that signal and your receiver your home theater receiver knows what is in phase and not out of phase sends the out of phase to the back sends all the stuff to the front now that, was this was are we talking dolby pro logic here no this is before this dolby passive. pro logic yes this was passive just passive rears not matrix but, or anything it was just had to do with phase yeah, but some of the early stuff, it was really fun because we'd go to these conventions, these people would freak out because we'd have a train going across the front and an airplane going across the back, totally separate from each other. It, it was just wonderful. Then about a year later, they came up with ProLogic, and again, that's how that happens. They'd do Indiana Jones, they'd go in and record the left and the right. Well, they'd take old Indiana Jones in, set him down in a chair, and record his dialogue out of phase from the fronts. And then the, that whole thing out of phase for the rears, it was all done with phasing. Think about it. You only have a left and a right signal. How are you getting four signals out of that? 
Yep, fades left, it. right, center, and rear surround. Re-enter Bob Heil's 128 element antenna. <laughs> I, <laughs> Once it again. Always, it always came back. And I mean, you got to understand, don't take this wrong. I didn't invent it. Of course I didn't. But it's the science of it. And here's this little kid running around on this big antenna that learned it firsthand how much difference you had if you didn't have things in and out of phase and what you could do with it. Oh, man. And so we became really involved in home theater. We were building little theater rooms with red curtains and motorized curtains and all of that kind of stuff. I met up with Theo Kalamarakis. I'm sure a lot of your your audience knows about Theo. In fact, we, he, was a, he was a guest on my podcast, as I didn't, I failed to say before, was Tom Holman. Tom Holman was my very first podcast guest on this show, and Theo Kalamarakis was... Uh, I don't know, some, some months ago, maybe yeah. as much as a year ago, but uh, they've both been uh, guests on my show, so uh, we're, you're in very good company there, obviously. Well, we all worked together, that's for sure, and yeah. Theo joined us on a couple of conventions. We put in a couple of really good theaters that he built and all that, and, and then that, that just kept going, and, and when I received my award in 89, I, I was pretty high profile in, in, the, in the satellite business. I was contacted by by Stanley Hubbard, and Stanley had me go to Minneapolis, where I sat down in his office, and um, he was a guy that had spent a fortune of money to buy a license in 19, I think it was 85, maybe a little more. Before that, his family's very famous in the broadcast industry. His grandfather did the first broadcast remote on AM radio of a wedding from a hot air balloon. <laughs> a wedding yes. in a hot air balloon. Well, it was a remote AM. Think about it. How wild was that? Seriously. To to seriously. Hear, those, hear those people up there as they come out of the sky. His father bought the cameras from the World's Fair and put the put them on the air in nineteen thirty nine. He was one the of the very family. that was one of the very first broadcasts then, television broadcasts. Absolutely. And what did Stanley do? He paid a lot of money. We're talking tens of millions to buy a license. And because he was first, he got to pick out the best spot in the sky, dead south. For a, for a satellite, you mean? Absolutely. But yeah. his license was not C-band. C-band satellite was the big stuff. That was four gigs. The dishes had to be about 10 foot in diameter, 8 foot, so to get any kind of decent signal. But if you went, We're talking 4 gigahertz uh, carrier frequency, right? Uh-huh. Now, if we could do that three times higher, maybe like 12 gigs, mm -hmm. the dish would have, we could be three or four times smaller. Aha. Mm. Uh -huh. In fact, there's a, pic there's a picture of you with a, looks like maybe a two or three foot dish. That was a 24-inch dish in 1991, and it was a test dish for Hubbard. I was in southern Illinois. Their transmitter was in Minneapolis, and we were one of the test dishes across the country for DirecTV. And what was interesting about it is that he, he brought on RCA, Sony. They were building receivers. Then he brought in General Motors that actually formed DirecTV to be the programmer. I find that that was a, 
unlikely bed partners, but it, it, it was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And those four people put DirecTV on the market. I was very involved in the beginning of that, doing all the tests. In fact, their vice president came to St. Louis. We did a deal one time. I did a lot of spec homes, you know, where builders are build this special house to show off their work, and it had sure. designers and all that. Mm-hmm. We would put home theaters in them. I'm not talking about a little room. I'm talking about the whole house. It was just great. I had Barco come in. This was in 1991, I think it was. Barco came in with a high-definition projector. Mm-hmm. We had a fabulous sound system that I had built. And, of course, by then it was ProLogic. I was, I was and still am a nut for Pioneer Elite. And uh, we used A very excellent their- brand, no question about it. Yeah, it was great in those days. And then we put on a program bringing down the very first signal from a, a movie that came down on DirecTV. It hadn't been on the air yet, but Stanley Kozlowski carried that receiver with him. And I had a picture of he and I. There is a picture of, uh, of you and him uh, direct t- with, uh, there it is. There it is. We were on this deck of this spec home lining that thing up. And that he carried the receiver because they had to have a card with it. And, of course, he had the, the only card that worked mm-hmm. uh, at that time in that receiver. And we put on a heck of a show for two or three days. Thousands of people in the St. Louis area came to see that because no one had seen high def. No one had seen direct TV. It was coming and we were talking about it for many years on my KMOX show. I was on KMOX here in St. Louis for 25 years, starting in 1977. And we would bring them all the latest gadgets and things. Uh, I, I was a, an early, and don't get this wrong, I was an early uh, wannabe Leo Laporte. <laughs> <laughs> no way was I good as he, but we brought people uh, just interesting things from all the shows. Uh, CBS would send me to the various CES and, and home theater shows. And I bet you many times you and I crossed paths and bumped into each other and didn't know it back in the days because we were well. Oh, yeah, because I, I remember one of the first things we did. I, I was at a show, and we would do remotes from those shows. And I'd say, I got this little thing, man. It's a disc. It's about four or five inches in diameter, and it's got music on it. We're going to be able to throw away our cassette deck. <laughs> the birth of CD. Wow. Yeah, and I, I also have a I – th- I thought I might have sent you the picture where – I uh, I did television here also for uh, two different television channels on their news team. And, and we actually did a broadcast back from Las Vegas with DirecTV introducing the wonderful DirecTV to the public. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that it had been shown to the public. And so I had a big fun time in those it was just so much fun and oh, i yeah. did many homes we'd go into the homes i love working I, I love working in the homes before they were even designed we've got a couple walls. of pictures of before and after a couple of your theaters oh, uh yeah. let's see if we can pull those up um there's there's one that's a combined before after before and after shot and then there's a, a separate one with a before and an after yeah okay now, there's, that, the, there's a before and after for you that that on the left there we see the before, which looks like a gutted bathroom. I mean, like like it had a fire in it. 
What? No, there was just a bunch of old cinder block basement, whatever. It had been there for years in an old toilet. And this was an old house. It was a 100-year-old house, and they completely redid it as one of these design homes. They said, can you do anything with it? I said, absolutely. What you see on the right is what I did with it. Beautiful. And, uh, it was really good. We did one of our starlight ceilings, took uh, little Christmas tree lights up above uh, plexiglass. This was before we had LED stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was 1992. Wow. And yeah, uh, there, you, there you can see the little twinkly lights. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we have another one of uh, a fireplace. Yes. Uh, in a, in a, was it a spec home? I don't know. No, um, no. This was a, a, a home in Highland, Illinois. And they had this big, beautiful stone brick fireplace, tall. And they wanted to redo it. They were redoing the house. Martin Wick, I mentioned Martin a while ago, very dear friend of mine. I designed a cap for that. And uh, that cap included, of course, a Pioneer Elite television, the entire sound system. And we encapsulated that fireplace, and that's what it looked like. Fireplace oh, wow. still worked down there, too. Oh, <laughs> now where's the, the, the TV? I guess is off to the side. Over to the right. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, by the way. Thank you, thank you, thank you for not putting that TV over the fireplace. This is one of why my would you, what, Why would you want to do that? So you get a crick in your neck? Exactly. <laughs> and yet so many people do it. No, and so many designers do it. These even to the even to this day, and I'm and every time I see that, I go no. <laughs> oh, even even worse than that, they want to put the speakers up there. Okay, yeah. let's fill up all that echo box you got up up above you here, and then you're going to hear it about uh, uh, twenty five thirty milliseconds later. How about putting it down here where it's right where you should be? Oh. Where it should be. Sorry. Thank you, thank you. You know, you knew what you were doing even well back then. <laughs> Yeah, and well, that, like you look at that. I had to fight them on that. You you knew I would because uh-huh. they wanted it all center because they did have a designer, and I said no, I can't go there. Yeah. And I just held my ground. In fact, we did a a gutsy thing. Uh, Martin Wick and I, he did all the beautiful cabinet work at Wick Pipe Organ, and uh, this was a good friend of his. And his friend said, "You guys do it, whatever you come up with." And the designer thought. If you saw that center was left open, she was going to put that television up there. And when we got it all in there, the television wasn't there. It was off to the right. And so what are you going to do? It's already done. Shut up. Go home. Right, right, right. Now, uh, that's obviously a four by three, which was in, in those days what you had. But interesting that you found Pioneer Elite Plasmas to be the uh, display of choice even way back then. And, and they continued to be all the way up to... The Kuro, which uh, it was the last TV they made, and now mm-hmm. they don't make them anymore, and I'm always yeah. very sad about that. Yeah, me too. I love Elite. I was one of their first dealers, and we were the only dealer in the St. Louis area for many years. And um, it was part of the reason I got out of the business, Scott. I can tell you almost the second that I got out of the business, and it was at a CES show that Sarah and I went to. Um, right about year 2000, 2001, no, about 2000 it was, mm-hmm. I walked into the Pioneer display, and of course they're all, oh, you know, Hiles here, take him over here, da 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 show him this, and I stumble over this box, and I said, what's this? And they said, oh, this is our latest thing, look at this. There's a big cardboard box, and it said on the side of it, and I quote to you, Scott, home theater in a box. 
Mm-hmm. $495. Matt. Uh-oh. And I looked at Sarah, and she looked at me, and I said, hmm, I guess we got to go home and sell a business. <laughs> <laughs> this this uh, cardboard box uh, that said home theater in a box on the side did not inspire confidence, eh? Well, it it showed me that they were going to start selling they the 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 big distributors the, the manufacturers industry. yeah the big they manufacturers were start yeah. selling their stuff in the big box stores and that's okay however i think that kind of of thing home theater see, to me it was like my mother i was i love this technology being able to do all this and you're going to coin that word that we coined back in the 70s and you're going to sell this to somebody for 400 bucks no home theater is just what it's envisions it's a theater it, it's it's the experience it's i always said that it's not just a television and it's not just a big bunch of speakers it's an experience when you sit down in your chair. The chair's got to be right. The lighting's got to be right. Everything has to be right. Just like you go to a theater and pay 10 bucks to go see whatever. And yeah. that's what we built. And we had a great reputation for that. But it wasn't done for $495. <laughs> well, certainly we do have the home theater, in a $495 home theater in a box now. But... <laughs> Isn't there still room for the higher end, uh, the the installation, the the stuff that you used to do? I mean, oh, yeah. people still do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the other thing that was going on at that time is is Joe was uh, working with me to develop these microphones. And hmm, wait a minute, I might have another passion over here that's warmer than what they just. Putting cold water on over here, and we got into building the microphones, and mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing. Why do my microphones have 40 dB of rear rejection that no other microphone, Neumann to Kmart? Why do they have 40 dB of rear? No other microphone ever did that. Why? Because of that 128 element antenna. I Yet again, we come back to the 128 element antenna and phases. Phase- Amazing! It was everything. Mm-hmm. It was everything. And once I learned that, I applied it everywhere because that science is with us everywhere we go. Yeah. And so I was, again, seeing some really huge light at the end of a tunnel, and it was not a train coming this way. Mm-hmm. And I always kid about it. Joe uh, was such a help. And who can have the eagles as your beta tester? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> But we're doing some fun things, and now we're the ham radio thing is just a monster, uh, and we're we're really having fun there, and out with over a hundred groups. Uh, it, it's so pleasing, and now I've got some things happening in the podcast world. I've been wanting to do this for a long time because. For all my life, I've hated condensers, and people look at me like I'm out of my mind. Oh, you're talking about? Well, I can prove it, and uh, it's very important that we bring some technology to this market, as I have the entertainment market. And uh, it's fun to go to these concerts today and not see condensers held up. 
they're all dynamics, but they're big diameter, big stuff. And it was Joe. He said, why don't you build me a big microphone? You can just hear him. I says, well, <laughs> we can't. Well, I'll just build big. He says, you know, the bigger things are, the better they sound. Well, um, I called one of my friends that was working at Shure at that time. They since fired him. He was a design engineer a few years ago. They said, we don't need you anymore. That's another story for another day. Another day. Uh, got replaced by China, huh? Well, anyway, um, I said, hey, Robert, what's the deal? Have you ever done this? He said, yeah, we tried it, but you can't tame it. I said, really? Because the diameter is huge, and it, it, it just fall. The, the mm-hmm. diaphragm just like wings on a bird. So I put it together, just to, the kid, Joe, and we're sitting at his kitchen table one day, two ham radio operators. I know he plays guitar pretty good, too. But <laughs> two ham radio operators. And he, we're working this out in our brain, what we could do to make this happen. And we did. And it works. And it's amazing. Wow. And it's, you know what? And I, I, unfortunately, we've run out of time. And, and I really hate to say that because I know you've got plenty of more stories, and I'd particularly like to talk to you another time about microphone design because it's a particular interest of mine as well. Yeah. So will you, will you come back and join me another time? Anytime. I just walk into this little crazy station lab, turn on a light, and here we are. So anytime. <laughs> I really and, thank you, and I, I thank the chat room and everybody back in Petaluma for pushing buttons, and I can't wait to be with you on the big weekend. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. Fantastic when we when the big move and the big party at the brick house uh, happens uh, over the next month or so uh, we're we're going to be broadcasting from there uh, when it happens and so uh, I'm sure looking forward to that and I'm looking forward to seeing you there and uh, meanwhile thanks so much for being on the show okay well I'm glad to be here and we're going to have a special event on ham radio that whole two days so you get to talk on the ham radio too How oh about fantastic that? I'm digging it I'm digging it thanks everybody and thank you Scott thank you Bob. Uh, of course, you can uh, get more information about Bob's company at HeilSound.com, and you can follow his podcast at twit.tv slash HN for Ham Nation. My online homes are ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. You can email me with questions or uh, guest suggestions for the show at scott at twit.tv, and you can follow me on Twitter at HTGeekScott. Next week, I have two guest geeks scheduled, Greg Lowen and Michael Chen, video calibrators and THX, THX uh, calibration instructors, just back from teaching a class in China. So they'll have some interesting stories to tell, I'm sure. Until then, geek out. <laughs>